0: And welcome back to the Cover Three Podcast here on CBS Sports. That's Barton Simmons. I'm Chip Patterson. We've got uh, Stephen Prather of Sports Source Analytics coming up in just a little bit. It is Coach Rankings Week, and while the rankings that Barton, myself, Tom Fernelli, who will be joining us to break down those rankings uh, on Wednesday, and and many others of the experts, you know we we had numbers at our at our uh, at our hands and at our disposal, but for the most part, kind of felt like uh, a lot of it was with the heart. Maybe as much as with the head, and and it'll be nice to have some sobering conversations with Stephen Barton. How are we feeling?
2: Uh we're good. We're good. Coach Week's one of my favorite weeks because it's great. It's great conversation. It's great debate fodder, and I'm convinced that college football fans are ultimately soap opera fans at their heart. And explain. I like they, this. <laughs> they. I think coaches take on this like character persona for college football fans. And that's why the, the, the coaching carousel is is people are so ravenous for it because what they're really looking for is just like storylines and, and following the characters. And, and I think they're more interested in that stuff than they are in like scheme and, and personnel. So Ultimately, the, these college football programs have these like f- these these faces that are representative of the program, and and then you can talk about how they're evil, good, <laughs> bad, spiteful, petty, whatever, and you can just like play out all these little you know uh, telenovela type of uh, drama if you want to. I love
0: that. Love that take. Well, as, as the, as the actual rivalries get going on the field, we'll come up with some good character arcs. Yeah, that's <laughs> we, right. we got, we got to see if we're going to be, uh, it's, it's like, we got to see if the character from USC makes it to the end of the season.
2: Yeah. The good, just the good guy, <laughs> right? <laughs> the good guy. That's just, you know, down on his keeps luck, on getting, down on his luck, keeps on getting knocked around, but everyone is really appreciative of, of, of his character. Um, but he can't win a battle to save his life.
0: That's, so, yeah. so we're recording here on Tuesday morning. Uh, the American Athletic Conference rankings 1 through 12 uh, AAC only is up on cbssports.com. 65 through 26 of our Power 5 coaches rankings are going to be going up here shortly, and then we will reveal 25 through number 1 on the website cbssports.com on wednesday Uh, wednesday will also be when barton tom Fernelli, and myself we will bring our own ballots to the table uh, for a little bit of conversation and debate which should be a lot of fun uh the 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 eight few um was it like few few uh fan bases are more passionate about getting disrespected like ucf and it's been years of it together. And our ranking of Josh Heupel not being
2: number one was not good. Oh, did <laughs> did CVS catch some uh, some heat? Did the CVS handle catch some heat?
0: No, Chip Patterson, the guy who had to write oh, up. Oh, because he wrote the story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so that's like, you know, number one, it is a consensus ranking. I, have, <laughs> I am but one ballot in this. But because my byline is on it, and because I did add some uh, of my own Uh, my own comments to the ranking, Josh Heupel, number five. And I even started it with, talk about a big swing and a miss by us. Our ranking of AAC coaches a year ago had Heupel then heading into his first year as head coach after being offensive coordinator at Missouri at next to last at number 11. So I'm admitting we were off having him number 11. But with him at number five and uh, Ken Niamatololo, Coming off a three and ten season at number one, still for the second year in a row, the UCF fans were not happy.
2: Yeah, I, I think um, I think that that Heupel being five is def- is is the only thing that I think is not very defensible in that. And I don't know where you had it. I think it's hard to argue that Charlie Strong and at this stage in his career should be above. Hypel. It's a little bit of door number two. I mean, I guess Charlie Strong had a good first year. A little bit of like the, you know, the mystery of Hypel. As I talk through it, no, I don't think there's any reason to be like furious that I mean Hypel still is in year one. Are you going into year two? I personally had Hypel above South Florida and Charlie Strong. I think I even maybe even had him above Dana Holgerson. Right. Um I mean, what do you I do didn't... with Dana Holgerson?
0: That's a big part of sorting out the top of the conference.
2: Right. Because ultimately, and we'll dig into this a lot. Uh, tomorrow, when we talk about the the Power Five rankings, but to me, this is not a this isn't a this isn't a Hall of Fame ballot. This isn't a career uh, snapshot. This is who you are right now, and right now, even though Charlie Strong had some great years at Louisville, and I mean, good enough years at Louisville to be hired as the head coach at Texas, for goodness sakes. But right now. It's hard. I mean, it's been a while since we, since Charlie Strong has looked like a great coach. Um, Uh, And and with that said, as well, like I had Luke Fickle, maybe even I I may even had him number two or three. I think I had three, right behind Norvell, Um, because that's hard for me to. I don't know who had. I don't know where you had Fickle, but hard for me to see Fickle all the way down at six in our coach rankings. I
0: I had him top half. I think. I mean, that was yeah. that was the other one that you had to make the big adjustment on. The year before, we had Fickle at ten, but then he goes from four and eight to eleven and two, knocks off Virginia Tech in the bowl game, uh, won every single game at home. Like that's Luke Fickle's got it going, and like, yeah. and I wrote this, and it was like, you know, my brain gets a little bit between college football, college basketball, golf. Like it, it can get a little cluttered on the on the mental desk, but. Didn't Fickle start with a Cincinnati team that was hugely packed with freshmen and sophomores?
2: Well, are you saying that as a positive or a negative?
0: I'm saying that as it is one of those situations where um, similar to what we saw with Dave Doran, his first year at NC State, he had one of the youngest teams in the ACC, but then all of a sudden with steps forward – when he's going into year three, he's got the same players. They have all this game experience. They've continued to develop, and now these are this is a large group of players that have struggled together and succeeded together. And then Cincinnati now you got to look at them as like, man, are, are is Cincinnati going to challenge UCF? Or, I mean, are they about to go and contend for a conference title? Because I I think that might be the case.
2: Yeah, but I think that that is all all of that is a credit to fickle to me. Oh, 100%. Right? Yeah. yeah. I mean,
0: the when I when I looked at the consensus rankings, um I kind of I I, fe- I felt like there was a lot being given to Charlie Strong for what he did at Louisville.
2: And yeah. And a lot and and no question. And and I I've, I've we've got some guys on our on the panel that I I think to have a little more traditionalist view of this approach <laughs> <laughs> to where they think of this in terms of, Oh, Charlie strong. Like this is look at look at all he's accomplished over the course of his career. What's Josh Heupel done or what's Luke fickle done? Right. I mean, they've they've coached, they've been head coach for three years combined. Um, but I don't look at the I don't look at it that way. I look at it. I, the way I look at it is, who would you want to coach your team right now? And if any of the people that put Charlie Strong above Josh Heupel and Luke Fickle would say I would take Charlie Strong as my coach of my football team over those two guys, I, I I'm not sure they would say that for one. But for two, I would if they did, I would I would certainly disagree with them. Let's
0: see. I had Fickle number four and Strong number five.
2: Yeah, that's a that's that's better.
0: I did Norvell. I did Norvell one, Holgo two, um, Ken Niamatololo three, Fickle four, Strong five, Rod Carey six. That was my top half. Yeah. And shout out to Rod Carey, by the way. He's going to get a real opportunity because he won a lot in Northern Illinois.
2: Yeah. yeah, sneaky good coach. Consensus twelve, I would imagine. Randy Edsel, I can't imagine was was firing anybody up.
0: Mm-mm. Mm-mm. You mean one of the most historically bad uh, teams in the history of one football? Of
2: the the worst defense statistically in the history of the game. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> good luck, Randy. Uh, right, yeah. hey, I hate. W- I want to hit on this because uh, it is
0: one. O- it is another chapter in what is the biggest, if not second biggest, just sort of ongoing story in all of college football from a big picture standpoint. And that is the, the continued growth evolution and what I see as really being the final piece of a big time, like level up moment for the Clemson Tigers as they have in the last two weeks or so. We, we talked about uh, Brian Breesy, number one defensive tackle. They're locking down the top two players from the state of Florida, uh, with Demarcus Bowman. Is that right? The yeah. running back? Yeah. Demarcus Bowman. And then, in a much hyped, uh, very you know s- celebratory moment for the program, they locked down five star DJ Ugalele. Uh, you've been talking about him here on the podcast in a little bit. 247 Sports has identified him as one of the most unique quarterback prospects 6'4, 240 pounds, just absolute cannon of an arm. He commits to the Clemson Tigers, chooses them over the Oregon Ducks, and now the the post-Trevor Lawrence succession plan is in place. Clemson is going to be a real contender for the number one class in 2020. I would assume very much already locked up, basically, the best recruiting class in program history. And where Clemson previously was – it's like they were closing the gap with Alabama, Georgia, and Ohio State – with uh player development and execution right like they were getting in really solid players definitely some five stars in there that goes all the way back to like Sammy Watkins but uh, they've been able to close the gap with player development and execution now they are also truly recruiting at the level of an Alabama Georgia or an Ohio State and the future just looks scary if you consider um what they've been able to do with the talent that they've had to this point
2: yeah I mean Ultimately, Clemson's formula boils down to to a couple things. Um, they get a couple of elite five star level playmakers, typically out of Florida, a year. Uh, they get they've recruited the defensive line as well as anybody in the country, and they've recruited the quarterback position as well as anybody in the country. I mean, if you got those three things, it doesn't really matter that much what your offensive line is like or what your linebackers are like or what your DBs are like really i mean you and so they're continuing to do that they've got i'm look like right now if 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 we can if we assume DJ Lele is going to be a quality starter as good as we think he is and i think i think the cop for him is Jamarcus Russell from a not not from an off the field character standpoint, obviously, but from a tools trait standpoint. I know that that feels like a slight in in these these days, but remember that guy was picked number one overall. Um so the if he is that if he is that what we think he is, then we could be looking at twenty twenty-three, maybe even twenty twenty-four, before Clemson has a starting quarterback. That wasn't the number one player in the country or the number one quarterback in the country, at least coming out of high school. I mean, that's insane. Yeah. And so, and not only that, but they just lost three first round defensive linemen to the NFL draft. They've got at least three other five star defensive linemen now stepping in to fill their shoes. And, They've got – they're going to have – they've got the top – I think they got like the top three defensive tackles in the country, maybe four of the top five or something committed this cycle. Um, they've, they've now had four straight five-star commits, and they're going to have a fifth straight five-star commit later this month, a, another defensive lineman. This is a class that would make Alabama blush. Like this is a class that is doing things right now – there's a long way to go, but there's no reason. Like, Clemson, I don't think, has had a decommitment for non-academic reasons in, like, five years. I mean, so it's not as if this is some house of cards that, oh, early early recruiting rankings don't mean anything. No, no, this is a ridiculous class that is looking like it's pacing to be the best recruiting class of all time. So it's just that they have done what they've done with a – five-star, top of the rankings, or top of the class, three stars that other Power Five schools didn't want, bottom of the class, and they build this roster and build this culture and they go win games. That's what they've been doing. Now, they could potentially be building the same kind of culture with five stars up and down the recruiting class. I mean, where where do they go from here? I mean... Again, you can't find the weakness in like missing out on a quarterback right now. So, where where is the hole? And it's just scary to think what they've they're close to accomplishing or what they're what what's just in store, what's just sort of is inevitable.
0: Well, and and that's the Like it, this does not matter. This is the kind of stuff that Dabo Sweeney would call clutter, and and what college football coaches want to leave on the outside. But if our purpose is talking about the sport and you know diving into the storylines and the things that we find intriguing, it is the change from Clemson, the underdog from Clemson beating on the door, Dabo Sweeney sitting there on college game day screaming, saying we've won as many games in the last four years as only three programs, Alabama, Oregon, and Ohio State. Why aren't we getting respect from having to overcome Clemsoning and everything else? It's like now I think that with the second national championship and with what they're doing on the recruiting trail, it feels like we've hit over to the other side. Like we've gone to the – to the upside down where Clemson is not the hunter, but the hunted where the target is on their back, not just in the ACC, but nationally and in a very national way. Like is Clemson fatigue coming like in the same way yeah. that people get sick of talking about Alabama all the time. Like yeah. I, I think that Clemson's going to start being, they, they are no longer going to be as lovable on the, in the national conversation as they have been during this
2: rise. Uh, no, no doubt. Especially because Dabo is as likable as he is and was as an underdog. He's gonna be that annoying as the favorite and the hunted, the hunted. Uh, you know, it's. I just, I can just see it. I can already see it coming. Um, and there's gonna, and now Klims, you know. Hey, Clemson, get used to everyone accusing you of cheating, right? Get used to, uh, you know, all it's just, it's all of it is going to, they are now going, they are a blue blood now, right? The, The Roy bus is gone. The Roy bus is in the junkyard. You are, you are no longer allowed to claim the Roy bus. You are the big dogs in college football, like it or not. And, uh, and and now everyone's gonna enjoy hating them. I think we, we may be like one year away, like they'll still be Trevor. How can you like? Because Trevor Lawrence is such a likable guy. Like they recruit a lot of likable guys. Right. I mean, that's sort of part of their their charm. Um, but you know, another year of of, of long haired Trevor Lawrence balling out. If we're in year three, it's gonna get it's gonna get real old to a lot of people. Um, and so I think this is the this is the Transition year by year three, they're straight up villains.
0: Yeah, that's what I'm saying. How how could this Clemson team with like Christian Wilkins and Deshaun Watson <laughs> right. like like how could this Clemson program become a villain? But
2: man, if they like, keep- who was the last when was the last Clemson player though? What was that like? Could even play that role? Maybe Ben Boweir just because he was this sort of scrappy, you know, uh, linebacker that was you know, always making plays behind the line of scrimmage and celebrating. I don't know. Like maybe you could play him up as a, as a heel. Well, but well, well cause
0: he was, he was with Christian Wilkins and Christian learned his lesson and stopped doing it when he got caught, but they were sticking their fingers where they shouldn't have been sticking them in the hole. They got caught for
2: that. <laughs> that. That'll be, that'll be regurgitated here in the coming years. I promise you as, as like a, a montage of some fan theory of Clemson being dirty, you know, and now, and they got the, um, They've got the Dester Lawrence failed P D deal where, you know, there's South Carolina fans that I've heard being like, oh, Clemson's doping their players up right. because of that. It's like it's all gonna be on the table now with everyone just looking to pick a reasons to hate that program. And uh, it's not gonna happen year it's not gonna happen this year. But I think twenty twenty everyone's just gonna the 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 avalanche of Clemson haters are gonna start piling on. Um, All right. We will get to our conversation with Stephen Prather
1: of Sports Arts Analytics right after this. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget.
0: And now it's our pleasure to welcome to the Cover Three podcast Steven Prather of Sports Source Analytics. This is a conversation that we've been really looking forward to because it rolls right into uh, the CBS Sports Coach rankings that will be coming out uh, a little bit later on this week. Sports Source Analytics is uh, just an absolute boss. They are paired with all five Power Five conferences the ACC, Big Ten, Big Twelve, SEC, Pac Twelve, and the American. The college football playoff. They've got relationships with athletic departments. They've got relationships with coaching staffs uh steven this is a 12 month like some people who work in football it can be seasonal it seems like the work that y'all are doing there is no off season it is 12 months of the year
3: no question we um in fact i I usually find myself almost busier when it's technically the off season than than during the actual season this is really really the next probably 90 days or, or our busiest time of the year
0: what are y'all doing during that 90 days?
3: So I mean, a lot of it is, is new business generation. So, you know, we, the the good and the bad is, you know, we, we usually get involved in a fair amount of coaching searches, which is good. The bad is we also get a lot of shuffling around of, of coaching staffs, you know, not only head coaches, but all the coordinators and assistant coaches. So, you know, often we're scrambling around that we might've built a relationship with one guy here and now he's gone to a different school and that almost restarts our sales cycle. So, and, and, and obviously we're trying to get, you know, FaceTime a lot of these coaching staffs that we're trying to get in front of. So this can be a, a heavy travel season for us and trying to go visit with existing clients and then future clients. We all, we also ramp up pretty heavily here as the summer gets in with some of the work we do with the playoff. Um, that'll start to prepare, obviously getting ready for the season. And then we're um, the off season is also where we get a lot of our new ideas and new platforms. Like we're, we're, we're about to be rolling out. We're really excited about this new salary projector that we're working on that, that would primarily be meant for athletic directors and, and also potential agents of really trying to project what salary should a coach be making. And, and then, you know, is he overpaid, underpaid? And it's been – we're using some really cool machine learning stuff we're getting into, and so we're, we're in kind of testing mode for that right now, and, and we're pretty excited about the, the future of that. But – that's the kind of stuff that we do in the off season, so it's it's really a really kind of heavy time for us.
2: Well, that that sounds like a, a whole different uh, podcast. Like I feel like we can we can have a separate yeah. show yeah. on 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 the salaries and and coach value in and of itself. Uh, I I really, you know, we're, we're we're doing our coach rankings for CBS Sports. Um, it rolls out this week. We'll talk about it on the podcast tomorrow. But I think it was I thought it'd be fun to get you on because you kind of do some non hypothetical work with coach evaluations and and obviously you, you, you do a lot of coach evaluation um, through analytics and, and 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 data as well uh, I, I wanted to kind of open it up this way you know in, in in the way you've and in your interactions with athletic departments athletic directors coaches is there sort of a pet peeve a, a common misconception, a, 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 an overvalued sort of perspective on what makes a good coach and, and and how would you kind of I guess steer the conversation in terms of what you think uh, kind of personifies the you know the, the, the best coaches in college football?
3: Yeah, that's a great question, Martin, to me. And so it, it's been interesting to me. I'm I'm just fascinated with, you know, what makes a good coach. You know, like what, like why are some coaches better than others? And, and it's, it's really been this interesting quest I've been on from the time when I played sports to, you know, I've always been really interested with leadership and with you know, studying the guys that seem to separate themselves. And what's interesting is there's a little bit of the more I get into it, the harder I realize the question is in that there's not an easy answer, right? Oh, well, to be a great coach, you've got to be, you know, disciplined. Well, I mean, there's, there's bad coaches that are disciplined coaches. Right. Well, to be a great coach, you, you've got to be, you know, an ultra-relationship guy. Well, not necessarily. I mean, there are some coaches that don't, you know, have not developed deep relationships with guys. So it's really interesting. One of my biggest pet peeves from working a lot of times with the athletic director side is when these guys have this preset notion of what a good coach looks like. And, and it's often a little bit cliched. You know, it's the, it's the energy, you know, mm. which I still don't have any clue what that is, right? I mean, like, I
0: don't,
3: I don't, you know, like, we want to coach this energetic. He has energy. I mean, I don't, I don't, does that mean like he's bouncing off the walls or is it, I still don't have any clue what that means. I, I don't love it when people get stuck on these character traits that they have no idea if they actually correlate to winning or losing or being a good coach. And often the ironic part is, the coach they just fired oftentimes could have had a lot of the traits they say they're looking for. And, and that's for us where data starts is helping you identify on the front end who the good coaches are. So like, for, I always love the line, you know, Warren Buffett always says, you know, he, he would never buy a company or invest in a company if he didn't feel really good about the character and integrity of the leadership, right? So I mean, obviously character and integrity matter, but, but back up he doesn't even look at the company if they've got bad numbers right so right. I mean, if it's not a, if it's not a company that meets his criteria on what he's looking for, he doesn't even get to the question of the character integrity. It's not like he's buying bad companies because the leaders have phenomenal character and integrity he's finding the good companies and then separating those out and saying okay who's got good character integrity so that's for us it's trying to identify start with some of the number side and say okay who's actually performing well like and and who's done it consistently and let's let's start with that and then you can kind of get into like i would never tell you that characteristics don't matter like their personality and some that it certainly matters but i think it often gets overvalued
0: what goes deeper than wins and losses when it comes to trying to collect the data like what are some of the factors there beyond uh just scrolling to a coach's wikipedia page and trying to see what all the data looks like laid out there
3: Yeah, so like, so we're big on, we kind of call it the three Cs. Content is the first C, which obviously you've got to just have a lot of information. So, you know, for us, yeah, you want the wins and loss, right? But it goes so much deeper than that. We want to see detailed offensive performance, defensive performance, special teams, recruiting. And then once we have all that, we then have to give it the second C, which is context, right? So if we can't bring that into context, so we're real big on looking at, performance when we study a coach I want to look at the several years before and see okay what did he take over and where have they gotten better where have they gotten worse you know what are those areas so we're real big on digging into the comparative part of a coach's performance well, like David Kutlitz is a great example I mean Cutler's barely won 50 percent of his games we're like okay well that guy's not that great a coach yeah but when you compare it to what he took over and certainly look at his last several years it's unbelievable what he's done you know, whereas Frank Solich won, what, nearly 80% of his games and got fired because comparatively they were winning 95% of their games before. Mm. So for us, it's vital to, to get to the, the content, then the context, and then that can help you actually draw a conclusion. But you've got to have the content and the context first. So for us, when we're evaluating, you know, it's not just wins and losses, right? Because you can look at a guy, so this guy's won, you know, 75% of his games. But like I said, if he took over a program winning 95 well then that's not good. Like the guy's taking the program in the wrong direction. So I mean that's we love to dig into that side of it. And we've got a really cool comparative analysis tool that allows us to really look at there's you know eighty different statistical categories and see you know how much better or worse a program, you know, was under a coach compared to what he took over.
2: So I I think the other thing that is 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 tough when you're evaluating coaches and and this this factors in and, and talking about some of the new coaches who are coming from coordinator positions where we don't really have win loss records to, to point to but yeah. also when building out staffs like there's I, i'm just convinced that there's a lot of bad football coaches in in college football and in the NFL and and you talk to yeah. other coaches yeah. and they'll agree with you on that and and but yeah they 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 keep getting hired and and so it really is, it feels like it's impossible to really tell who's a good coach and who's not and, and from the assistant ranks unless you've really talked to, like, a lot of people that have either coached with them or played for them or maybe not. I don't know yeah. where, where, where you come in on this, but I, I'm curious, like, have you found some effective ways to evaluate assistant coaches um, and, and – and project those guys out yeah so i mean i mean it's it, it, it you're exactly
3: right Martin. it gets really difficult i mean one thing that we've seen one thing that's kind of amazed me is and we've actually gotten into where we do work with some head coaches on coordinator searches i'm often amazed at actually how little coaches know about other coaches i mean I, i've had certain circumstances where i've mentioned the you know an offensive or even as a coordinator name when talking to a coach and I would, you'd be, you would be convinced that there's no way this coach hadn't heard of the guy and they'd not heard of him. Like they didn't know what I was talking about. Wow. So there's definitely a clarity bias with, you know, coaches. I get it. They get these small windows when they've got to make hires. And often what they do is they, they revert to who they know, right? So they go in their network and they get it. and, And the whole idea of, well, I've got to be able to trust them. Well, I mean, yeah, right? I mean, to some extent. But if they're a crappy coach, does the trust really matter? Like, I mean, if they get you fired because they're a crappy coach? It is difficult when you look at that. I mean, especially on the coordinator side, what's gotten harder in this day and age is there's so many guys with the coordinator title, right? So it's like there's the offensive coordinator, then there's the pass game coordinator, and the run game coordinator, and the co-offensive coordinator. So one of the challenges we've had recently is trying to dig into that and find out, okay, who's actually – doing like how do we how do we dig deep and that's there's no easy answer to that because you know you could have two guys and then oh well you know well they, they split the play calling duties well I don't really believe that so then you got to try to dig deeper and then there's what side of the ball the head coach is involved in so one of the things we try to also do is kind of do you know post-mortems per se when, when coaching hires especially at the coordinator level when coordinators do get hired We really like to track the success or failure and then try to go back and see, okay, what are there some conclusions that we can kind of get to based on this guy succeeded, this guy didn't? And what can we look back at and see? And it obviously gets difficult. And we always tell athletic directors we work with, this is not a science, right? I mean, it's this is difficult. Like finding great coaches, if it was easier, if it was easy, it would be a lot easier, right? It's not easy to do it. We certainly have looked at guys before and I'm like, man, that guy did a lot better than I thought or this guy did a lot worse than I thought. So it's not an easy thing, but I'll say this, I can't even imagine trying to do it without data. I mean, the amount of data we have is shocking and it's still very difficult to analyze you know, the coaches and how successful they're going to be or how they're going to transition you know, to a different job.
0: Are there ever any times where you're tracking uh, coordinators or assistants you know, through their careers, and you know, you maybe wonder why hasn't this uh, you know coordinator or assistant been hired? And is there some benchmark where you know there, there's a lot of uh, lifers out there in the coaching industry that are just assistant lifers? And is there you know when do you surpass that point where? If you haven't been tapped for a head coaching job, maybe as an assistant coach, you just kind of realize and you put in your own uh, career planning that this this is what it's going to be uh, from here on out.
3: Yeah, yeah, you know, that that is fascinating. It's like, kind the Bud Foster effect, right? Right. When you look at the guy who's been a defensive coordinator for about as long as I've been alive, you know, and, and in the same job. And you know, some of it I think is some guys clearly recognize. I think I think the the tough part has been with as the last 15 years, just the sheer amount of money that can be made as a head coach has probably forced a lot of guys that honestly were probably more meant to be career coordinators into roles where they they they, they chase the money, right? It's, Interesting. It's hard not to. I mean, yeah. You know, and the, you know, If you're making half a million dollars and you could take a job, you're making three million. I mean, that's, that, that delta is too much there to say, well, I'm maybe just a career coordinator. Now, I do think with, with, what, with the increase in coordinator pay, well, like, like it's hard to imagine that Brent Venables has not been a head coach, right? When you look at the success of Clemson and all they've done. But at the same time, you also look at what the guy's making. If, if you watch him coach, he loves to coach defense, right? I mean, you watch him on the field, that guy, I'm not saying he's not going to be a head coach, but he clearly really likes being a defensive coordinator. And then he's getting paid really, really well to do it. He's got a great working environment. So I think you might see it to where guys now say, hey, you know what, I think I'm pretty content with making $2 million a year and you know having this and not having to do the stuff a head coach does. But um, but yeah, I mean, there are guys like like you know, you, there's like the Bud Foster, you know, Don Brown's a guy that comes up. that's obviously been a long time. You know, some of these guys just more meant to be, you know, defensive coordinators and just accept that role. And I think you're seeing some of those guys are okay with that.
2: Brent Venables is a is an interesting one. I don't know Brent Venables, but everyone that I've talked to that has as sort of knows him or has more personal interaction with him says. The guy is just the coordinator all the way. Like he just doesn't have a head coach yeah. personality, persona, and so it may be just this perfect situation where Dabo has has this dream defensive coordinator working under him, who yeah. they're they're able to pay well, who doesn't maybe even really want to go be a head coach, and probably understands that he's best suited for a defensive coordinator. Um, yeah, that's,
3: that's, yeah, that's right. But the money these guys can make now, it's like at some point, these guys really need to ask themselves, you know, the thing about Venables, like at this point, he'd have to get a pretty major head job to get a raise, right? You know I mean, right. the money he's making. And what? it's like, does he want to go take the Kansas job and have that headache, Is or does he want to be, make $2 million a year being the coordinator at Clemson and compete for titles? Yeah. And do what he loves to do
2: yeah, yeah. And, and now he's got a son on his on on the team and he's got another son who's a senior in high school this year and yeah. feels like he's got another four years there or at <laughs> least uh, so yeah, with, with um in terms of like specific coaches like are there uh, this this past hiring cycle wasn't quite as volatile as, as the previous one um, are there any coaching hires that you saw this past cycle that really caught your attention and where you said, "Wow, you know that's that's the guy I would have taken," you know, or that that's a that's a really under underrated hire or one that's not getting uh, as much hype as maybe it should. Yeah, so
3: I, I'm a huge Satterfield guy. I, 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 you know, he's he's a guy that we started tracking three four years ago, and and I'm just I, I you know. The, the interesting part with Satterfield, the risk with a guy like Satterfield is that he's basically spent the bulk of his career both playing and coaching at one spot, and, and, and in a spot that's had a history of, of obviously success. That being said, I mean, I just loved the way they played football. And, and one of the things we've looked at recently, and I think there's a new trend. You know, the trend four or five years ago is just hot shot offensive coaches and coordinators just are going to get the jobs. And, and as the defenses have kind of caught up, I think you're saying, okay, who are the coaches that are really playing complimentary football? Like, like who's actually performing well in all three phases of the game that's recruiting. Well, that's developing, well, that's playing good offense, even to special teams. And Shatterfield is a guy that really jumped out at us at that group of five level and what he was doing. And what's great about a league like the Sunbelt is there's a lot of parity in that league, right? I mean, it's not like Satterfield was rolling out. and His players were just head and shoulders better than everyone he played. And so he really had to coach his way to, to, to the success he had. And so he's a guy um, I, I, I'm really high on. I, I love Neil Brown. I'm really fascinated to see Neil at West Virginia. Um, and I think Neil's an interesting one that kind of went from a guy that was on that kind of hot shot offensive coordinator route and really pivoted when he became the head coach and, and said, okay, we've got to learn to play complimentary football. We've got, he puts a ton of emphasis on special teams. Their defense was phenomenal. And he went away from kind of the Kingsbury model of like, we're just going to try to score 60 points a game, you know, and if we lose 65 to 60, so what? Neil went to the approach of, we're going to play complimentary football. And my goal isn't to score points, is to win games.
0: Mm.
2: So, so complementary. Yeah. Go ahead. I'm trying Well, I just, I mean, I think that's a great, so. Because I've talked to you before, and and you've been, um, you know, you, you've been very much a believer in complementary football, and so, you know, I, I think so many like Cliff Cliff Kingsbury sitting here, the, the head coach of the Arizona Cardinals right now, because he put up 100 points a game, but they couldn't win, and and so, right. like, I think you make a great point that if you're the head football coach. And it doesn't matter if you're calling the plays or you're the you you know you're the offensive coordinator or not. But if you're the head football coach, your job is to figure out ways to win the football game, right? Like it doesn't, it shouldn't, and and you should be you should be figuring out ways to help whatever part of your team needs that help, rather than just sort of putting the yeah, pedal yeah. to the metal to you whatever that's your strength might be.
3: Yeah, so that's exactly right. Like, so I mean, I think, Bart, you may, you know, I may have talked about this at a lunch one time, but I mean, I I, is, I got this from a book called Guts and Genius. Bob Glauber read a great book and looked at Walsh, Parcells, and Gibbs. And Parcells' mentor was his high school basketball coach, Mickey Corcoran. And he said, Mickey taught him, it, it, there's always a way to win games. It's a coach's job to figure it out. So, so we look at, we talk these, don't look for CEOs, look for CFOs, chief figure outers. <laughs> and, and you look at the greatest coaches, the greatest coaches, that's what they do. Like what they look at Belichick, he's the greatest CFO of all time, right? I mean, nobody has been able to figure out and that's a coach's job. Your job isn't to practice well or to recruit well, or to, you know, have a great weight room program. Like those are all, you got to do that, right? But at some point it comes down to on Saturday or Sunday, Am I giving my team a chance to win the game? Am I figuring out what I have to do? I think brains is massively undervalued. I say this a little bit tongue-in-cheek, but not really. If I was an AD or an NFL GM, I legitimately would give an IQ test to coaches I was considering. I'm dead serious. I really believe football is chess. It legitimately is a chess match. And I get it. It's played by people that are. It's very violent chess, right? But it's it, it. There, you look at the strategic moves and the decisions that have to get made. You can't tell me that brains aren't going to matter. Now, college football allows for a little bit less of brains because if I can just get bigger pieces, my, then it, that that that's an advantage I can have. Right. But at the same time, you're you're never going to consist. So you can't tell me Nick Saban. Is not a very smart individual. I mean, I, I know he is. I mean, I know the yep. guy's extremely intelligent. He's very well read. So, I mean, I do think when it comes down to it, there's a part of that figuring out how to win. And figuring out how to win sometimes is, yeah, we may not need to score a lot of points in this game because that's not the way we're going to win the game.
0: In the context of a season, uh, when you say chief figure well, out, or I, I go right back to your example of tracking Satterfield, the first year that App State made the transition. They were not eligible for a bowl game, but they started out the year like 1-5 or something. And Satterfield had to get everybody together, and they had to figure out how to turn that thing around. They won their last six games of the season that year and then went back-to-back double-digit win seasons after that in 15-16. and
3: Yeah, I mean, and, and, and well, was cool. Yeah, I, I probably watch a lot more of State football than the average person just because when I when we kind of get interested in the coach, we kind of pay attention. And I just love the way that they plan to win. I mean, I still say the greatest college CFO, in my opinion, is Bill Snyder. Mm-hmm. I, mean, I mean, literally, a guy goes to a place that like no one had even pretended to figure out how to do anything, but massively lose, and he figured out how to not only not lose but to win like big. And, and, and that's and he did it. Why like he did it? With like all of a sudden he got you know five star players rolling in, and he did tap into the JUCO market. Did a great job with that. But he is a fascinating study in the, this the figuring out. And what's great about Snyder? I've talked to Michael Lombardi a lot about this, and he says you he looks at Belichick. Coaches have to find a way to be divergent. Meaning you don't just like take on the trend and say okay, well everyone's running tempo, so we're going to do that. And Snyder, to me, was one of the great examples of a coach that figured out how to diverge. He was literally on the cutting edge. Urban Meyer will tell you that a lot of his spread principles came from studying Bill Snyder. Bill Snyder was on the front end of that spread, and he's certainly on the front end. Obviously, the Wildcat is called the Wildcat after Kansas State Wildcats. And then, honestly, when the the rest of the league started catching up, he did a 180. It went back to almost single-wing football. I mean, he was going time of possession – single wing kind of football with Colin Klein. So that's a guy that figured out each year, how am I going to win games and give my players the opportunity? That to me is what real coaching is.
2: That's that's going to be fascinating to see who effectively goes against the grain, you know, because like right now, yeah, yeah, I mean, there's, there's, there's the, you know, the Lincoln Riley's and, and even Alabama is sort of, you know playing with this spread principle and even it's trickled up to the NFL and and I'm not saying that's some, some sort of like fad but but at the same time like I'm curious I mean I look at Tennessee and and Jeremy Pruitt you talk about some sort of people that have to be smart Jeremy Pruitt I I I'm convinced puts on this like act that he's this old yeah, dumb I- c- country guy that doesn't know any better but just play downhill but I think he is I think he is really actually very smart And and yet, I think this like very stubborn old school approach. I'm I'm wondering if this is gonna play to where he's stuck in the past, and the offense is gonna be evolved enough, or this is gonna be exactly what you're talking about, and it's gonna be divergent to what everyone else is doing, and it's gonna cycle back around to what to that's the different style, and they've got the different program that makes them tougher to defend or tougher to play against week in week out.
3: That's right. Like, right. So so that's like, it's, it's, you know, the fascinating part, I I wish I could remember, we tweeted it out maybe a couple weeks ago. So we looked back like four or five years back, and and it's amazing, like almost so much of the, the the tempo used to literally, tempo and spread used to literally be an advantage just in and of itself. It was like, if you just did it, it immediately gave you some advantage The teams that really sold out on it, that were running a boatload of plays and really spreading the field. And you, and like you look back, and most of the teams that were the that ran the most plays and the fastest amount of plays at the time, like almost all of them were above 500 and one. Interestingly, you look in the last couple of years, it's flipped. And Not only are those teams not winning a lot, but they're actually losing a lot. And so, a lot of the advantages of being a spread team, just for the sake of like being spread and going fast, are gone. So now, what's going to be fascinating is seeing okay. Who can either just out execute, or you know, who's going to find a way to diverge within, you know, and, and have the next innovation? I mean, that's what's so fascinating to me about like the Patriots and Belichick. They were in, they were in two back personnel. They were in twenty or twenty-one personnel. That's no, right. They were in twenty, yeah, twenty or twenty-one personnel this year over fifty percent of the time. And, and, and you know, but next year, who knows? They might go to be in an eleven personnel team, back heavy. So it's it's interesting, each year, you know, what is somebody going to do to be divergent? It gets really tough at the college level because obviously you're not professional. You don't have professional players. You've got different, a whole new team virtually every year and so many different guys. And I think the coaches that are really going to be the guys that are innovative are going to be able to, you know, how can you be simple yet still be sophisticated and, and have a game plan type of offense?
0: You've got relationships uh, with dozens of different coaching staffs across FBS. What are some of the questions or concerns that you're hearing from the coaches uh, in terms of how they can use the data or what they're looking to gain in terms of an edge?
3: Yeah, I mean, it's it's that. It's I mean, partly it's how do I not get swamped in data, right? Like it's 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 it's, it's yeah. Hey, we're, and I'll say this: there, there's not a data collection problem. And they realize, I mean, college ball teams collect an enormous amount of information. The trouble is getting to what matters. And so that's, that's the interesting part of the challenge they have. There's so much of these stuff. All, you got, I mean, all this, you got all the, the catapult-type stuff now, which is, I think there's going to be some cool stuff, but there's just reams of data that gets put out and all the stuff you're tracking. And these guys spend an unbelievable amount of time with their staff on tracking all this stuff. But, but it's, the important part is actually understanding what matters. And that's what we really focus is trying to help these guys say, okay, it's not what you're collecting, it's what really matters to you winning and losing and how can we help get to that to where it's not that you're wanting to look at 80 things, you're wanting to look at the 10 things that really matter. And a lot of times coaches else, they get to this, well, we've always done it this way. We've always done it. Okay, we track it. You know, I love coming in and asking coaches, okay, let's look at your goal board, each, for game goal board. And like and just see does the stuff actually matter to winning and losing, huh. right? I mean, a lot of times they're tracking stuff that doesn't even matter.
2: What, what's an example of something that would be <laughs> tracked that that doesn't even matter?
3: No, I'll give a, I'll give a concrete example um, on a um, this was a this is an SEC offensive coordinator and we were going over goals and, and he had a he had a red zone scoring goal of eighty five. It was like 85%, 90 percent touchdown rate. So for the first thing we do is say, okay, is that even a realistic goal, right? I mean, you know, p- partly is like you need to make sure the goal has context. Yeah. And the goal was not realistic for this team in question. But then, two, the problem with the red zone goal, and I told the guy was, I said, if you look at it, let's say we go to the end of the year, and I said, Coach, you scored touchdowns 100% of the times you went to the red zone, but you averaged one and a half trips to the red zone per game. Would you be happy? He's obviously, like, well, no. I will like, say, well, then why is that a goal, right? <laughs> Let's say we got beat 52 to seven and we got to the red zone one trip and scored okay. a touchdown check. We, we made our goal. So like, like when it comes to red zone, the trip is actually more important than your scoring efficiency I and mean, scoring efficiency is important, but only tied with trips to the red zone. So like there's a good example, like third down, I think third down goals can be overrated. You know, the that, that coaches will set, Third down goals, and yeah, you know, we're real big on. And Michael Lombardi calls this, you have to see Canadian League football. We call it the Walsh ranking. But are you how, how often are you getting first downs on first or second down? Because if, if you're relying on, you know, third down, I mean, you know, the best team might convert a little north to 50 percent in a season on third down. I mean, the, the best offenses have to be designed to move the chains on first and second down, and the numbers back that up. So we've seen coaches that overemphasize third down efficiency when i think they should be looking harder at first down efficiency at p and 10 efficiency and things like that
0: just pulled this up by the way guys uh, as you were mentioning it the best touchdown percentage red zone in the country last year was ucf at 79 percent and to double down on your point steven navy which won three games last year is number five in red zone touchdown percentage uh way below the rest of the group yeah
3: who else is in there?
0: Uh, it's it was UCF, Miami, Ohio, Houston, Washington State, and Navy is the top five.
3: Yeah, yeah. So obviously, the the idea is that yeah, if you're only going to get there once or twice, you want to be efficient. But at the same time, once you going back to the goal of winning, you know, I, I need to I need to be getting there a lot. It is amazing. I forget the numbers offhand, but. When you win the red zone trip battle, I mean, you just get to the red zone more often. I think you win 80% of the time. It, I may be a little bit off on that without having to look it back up. It, it, but it's 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 really high. Forget whether what your efficiency is. Just just simply getting to the red zone more often and, you know, So that's the kind of stuff like we call it the first. We look at first down p and ten efficiency, first down efficiency, winning the first half sorry winning the first quarter winning the first half and scoring first those five firsts are it is amazing in college football teams win over 70 percent of the times when they score first Wow! Well, you think about that you win more than seven i did not the numbers and you went after the leading like urban meyer i think won 90 something percent of his games and he was leading after the first quarter bill snyder had phenomenal numbers on that so like so there's stuff like that that we get really, and that matters because it matters on how you game plan. Um, and, and you know, like, if how important is it to score first? It's very important, and that needs to be understood by your coaching staff and your team.
2: I think the other thing that um, I've noticed that you've you've been emphasizing lately, and and we've discussed this before too, but is the what is it the the final four minutes and the first four minutes? The final four minutes of the first half. First yeah, the, four yeah, minutes of the second yeah, the, half. Yeah,
3: those, yeah, those middle eight minutes—it's yeah. really interesting, and that's been fun digging into that. And that data is really fascinating on like how important. Yeah, I mean, Clemson was just like far and away the best middle eight team in the country
2: this year. Yeah, I mean, I think about the the, the the was the Cotton Bowl. I mean, the Cotton Bowl was like
3: yeah,
2: you know that that was a that was a close game, and then middle eight, yeah. and then the game over. That's right. Well, and it's and that's where it's really fascinating because it's
3: it, when you look at and that's important because I think when you when you get the ball and you understand especially the sense where you deferred, I mean if you can get, if you get the ball and there's three and a half minutes left and you eat that clock and roll down and score a touchdown and then you get that ball back and you march down as first one and score I mean you think about how much that flips a game and you know this goes back I mean this is another Belichick you know Belichick kind of got real big on the middle eight as a way to try to defeat Peyton Manning. Because he did the the single best thing he could do was just keep Manning off the field. And he looked at if he could kind of get that ball and control those last four minutes of the first half, go to the timeout, I mean, go to halftime, and then, you obviously have the ball coming out of halftime, he could keep Peyton off the field for like an hour of actual, you know, real time. You know, and he's like, that's that's the best way to stop a guy like that. You know, they can spend an hour without the ball.
0: Hmm. Uh, you mentioned Urban Meyer earlier. I was just, you know, either f- from your work with the data, your work with tracking coaches, what are your expectations for Ryan Day as he takes over the Buckeyes?
3: It's big job. Yeah, you know, it's always, it is. I think Urban Meyer is one of the top, Yeah, you know, certainly top 10 coaches in the last 50 years. It's not top five. When you look at a guy that literally won everywhere he went in a big, big way. That's he and I think he was a true complimentary coach. I mean, he understood special teams, offense, defense, recruiting, player development. I mean, you know, Urban was really and an phenomenal, phenomenal coach. Ryan Day's rolled into a tough spot, right? I mean, you're following a legend. You're at a program that expects to compete for national title now, and you've never been a head coach. And and really, you know, you look at, at Day. You know, I mean, he's he's been under some good coaches, but I mean, I think he's. I'm going to be really interested. I think it's going to be a tough, tough situation. I mean, I have heard really good things about him from people in the coaching world. But, you know, at the same time, you know, like it, it's hard to be prepared to jump into that situation. And I'll be very interested to see how he, he handles, you know, that role. I mean, it's it's going to be tough to, to you know, do what Urban did at Ohio State, in my opinion.
2: Across the, the rest of the coaching landscape, I'm just curious – I won't put you on the spot because I don't really know what your opinions yeah. are of these guys, but I'm going to throw a couple names at you. And, and if any of, because these are sort of as, again, we were asked to literally list one through 65 rank the coaches yeah. across yeah. college football. Yeah. And so there were some, I'm going to throw a couple names. that were some of the maybe tougher ones for me to rank. Yeah. Uh, and you could take any one of them and go anywhere you want with them. Um, yeah. Yeah. One, one is Gus Malzahn. One is Willie Taggart, one is Will Muschamp, and then I'll give you one more, uh, Steve Adazio. What do any of those jump out at you as sort of coaches that you have a strong opinion on one way or the other, or or just sort of perspective on? Yeah,
3: those are actually a fascinating list. If you probably if you probably said name the five or six coaches that are the toughest to say, are they actually like how, like what kind of coaches, are they doing a good job? Are they not? Like I would literally probably say, Champ fascinates me because you hear, I mean, I mean, I've talked to people that, you know, say, I mean, the guy clearly knows football I mean he's been around some of the best minds right. in football. Um, and, and, but yeah, you know, at the same time, I mean, you look at his record and where he's been, I mean, it's, it's, you know, it's not great. Right. So, so you, He's a guy that I think has struggled to develop into that truly complimentary coach of how can I go beyond just being this kind of intense defensive coach to being, you know, to being a head coach who's figuring out week in, week out how to win games, how to design game plans to win games. And I think that's the biggest trouble he's had is getting out of that role that you're you're no longer a defensive coordinator. It's tough because I, some people. I've I've had debates with guys on this. I don't think you can successfully do your job the way you're paid to do it when you when you're an emotional roller coaster on the sideline as the head coach. I kind of joke that. You need to have like you need to outsource some of your emotions to your assistants. <laughs> right. Like you might have a guy like that. When it comes time, like if you need to rage, like have a guy you can tap on your shoulder and be like, "Okay, rage for me for a minute. Go there and rage for me." <laughs> but but you know, like but because you can't do that. There's too much at stake on on thinking, and I, yep. so that's why I look at Muschamp. The stuff I have with Will, there's some games he finishes the game. He's sweating more than the players. <laughs> like, like, you know, like, I, I just like, and, and so I, I, I really do. I like Coach Muschamp. I think there's a lot of things he does. I think he knows the game. I think what's going to be interesting is can he get to that next level of being a better CFO? And, yeah. you know, I, I think some of those other guys you mentioned, like, like Taggart's a fascinating one to me. Cause like on one hand, like he did a phenomenal job at West Kentucky, taking that program from FCS, transitioning it and getting there. And he did it kind of with that, you know, a lot of that hardball model, Goes to you know, the to, to South Florida looks like he's going to be like oh now I'm already like he looked like a home run hire horrible first I think, two years at least I give him a lot of credit he kind of reinvented himself brought in some of those modern principles and then he's kind of then he obviously transitioned to the Oregon job the South part of the guy like Taggart is like I, you've never seen him at a place long enough to see can it, can the consistency be there right, right. and so. I you I, ask me like I'm still up in the air on Taggart too. It's like okay, well, you've done some good things, but you've never been long enough for me to see if it's if it's because I think I think the hardest thing about being a good coach is consistency. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Saban I think I, Saban said it. If consistency was a place, not many people would live there, right? So like it's really hard to consistently win over a long period of time when you've got to reinvent. I think that's where Gus has been is like. Gus was such on the cutting edge, right, of of, of that of the tempo, the no huddle, the spread, the, the kind of power run spread that he brought in. Now everything's caught up. So now it's like, now what? Now yeah. what am I? Am I a play caller? Am I the math scientist play caller? Am I, do I roll into the CEO role? Do I, so I think that's where Gus is kind of struggled with trying to figure out what do I want to be as a head coach? There's a little bit of an identity crisis he's had in that. Now I think he's got to decide what he wants to be, and he's also got to decide what's the next wave of, of innovation. I mean, do yeah. you, do, you, do you need to re-innovate or do you just double down on who you are, and and, and just out execute people with what you're doing?
0: You didn't mention Adazio in there because I I I let yeah, my Adagio. emotions I let my emotions get in because that's I'm like that that guy knows football. That guy's a good football coach, and I probably yeah. give give him credit that results on the field may not back up.
3: So no, but here's, here's the problem with Adagio. You're, it it is a, I actually think he's, if you look at it, Boston college is, is it has a pretty decent little football history, right? But it's a really tough place to win. I mean, if you look at their budget, if you look at their recruiting base, if you look at a lot of that, like that's And obviously if you look at what's going on in the ACC, I mean, it's, it's certainly a much better league than it was a decade ago. No, no question about that. So the fact that the guys winning more than he's losing, here's the trouble he has, I'm telling you right now, fan bases hate seven and six consistency. They hate it. Yeah. Even if it's okay, you you're you'd be better off like popping a ten and then a two, and right. then a seven, then a four, then an eleven. And then like it's almost like it, it, it's like, like consistency, I think he's been very consistent with it and honestly at a place it's not easy to win, has done some really nice things. But it's the problem is the fan base is like, well, damn, I'm tired of going seven and six. Yeah, I know, well, and, and yeah, you know, so that's
2: like, you know, yeah. I mean, it's it's uh, it's like I mean, obviously, he's a seven and six coach, or at least he's a seven and six coach at BC. But if you're if you're a seven and six coach, like, where does that put you in the national landscape? I don't even know. Like, does that put you toward the bottom, or does that put you towards the top? Like, it's hard to even say because most coaches aren't one place long enough at seven and six to, to really get a feel right. for like where they put you in the pecking order. Um, so,
3: yeah, no, that's, that's, exactly, that's exactly right.
2: So, but we've kept you a lot longer than we told you we would, but I got, I got one more question and then we'll let you go. Um, I'll give you a chance to sort of, let's say I'm an, I'm an AD or, or, you know, I'm, I'm looking for my next head coach. Are there a couple and you can go coordinator you can go group of five, but who are the who are the guys you've got your eye on that aren't on the power five level yet that you think you know you've co- sort of identified as some guys you really are are pretty bullish on in terms of of their trajectory as a as a football coach
3: yeah that that's a great question you know th- because what's so fascinating we, when we've talked a lot about this just internally with our own team is like trying to look at. You know, so many coordinators got hired, and a lot of those guys are now head coaches and play callers on trying to kind of figure out, you know, who are the next like coordinators, you know, that are that are going to be, and, and also that, that so much the focus had been on offensive coordinators. And I think you're seeing some defensive guys. I mean, I know Barton, you and I are both. You know, I, I'm a huge Bob Shoot fan. Yeah. Um, I, I think he's an, an amazingly intelligent guy. He's a phenomenal coach. I mean, you know, if you look at what he did at Vanderbilt, and obviously we saw him in action this year, and I mean, the Tennessee stuff. That's that's just kind of got its own. I mean, actually, think he did a good job there, and some of the circumstances are considered. I mean, I'm a huge, you know, Bob Shute fan when it comes to that side of things. Yeah. You know, looking at the the kind of up and coming coaches, you know, is is interesting. I mean, I'm um I'm I'm really I'm keeping a real close eye on Jason Candle. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I'm I'm very interested to see once again you have a little bit of the like he's obviously spent the bulk of his career at one spot, but I'm I, I think they play really good complementary football. I mean, he's a guy I'm I'm keeping a real close eye on. Um trying to roll through some of the some of the guys here that we I mean, it's hard not to be paying attention to Bill Clark at UAB. Sure. Um right. and, and what he's doing. I mean, I really like the way they play football. I love what they're doing. I mean, look, at some point, and it's, it's going to have to be the right fit, and I actually thought Kansas would have been a phenomenal fit, Jeff Munkin can coach. Yeah. I mean, you know, a lot of these power five teams do not want to run the triple option, and I get that. And I actually would not advise the triple option for a lot of power five teams. But for for the right one, like, that guy can flat coach, and and he's a guy somebody's going to need to take a chance on at that level. Um, big on Seth Luttrell. Um, I like what Latrell's done. I think Latrell's kind of following in that Neil Brown that is 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 still an offensive guy that knows how to put up points, but is also trying to design the team to be complimentary and that he's not just forgetting about defense and he wants to play good defense and they play great special teams. I still am interested. I, I, he he got ignored last year and they had a down year. There's still a lot of things I like about Mike Bobo. I think this is a really really key year for him to kind of get back on track. And kind of have that year. I mean, he's a guy I'm still paying attention to. Um, you know, he's got a good pedigree. Um, good I, coaches I'm, I'm really can good have team bad team. years,
2: and bad coaches can have good years, right, Stephen? That's
3: right. That's <laughs> right. That's right. And we talk about it all, we talk about it all the time. You know, it's not like you have a bad year and you should be just taken off the radar. So I mean, there's kind of other guys that, um, yeah, we, we we were able to work on the Charlotte search. I'm really fascinated to see Healy. In action, you know, and you can see Schroeder White kind of him taking that next step. I mean, that's a that's a tough program, and um, yeah, I mean, it's it, that'll be an interesting job to see him in action. So, at the coordinator level, I'm trying to think here. I'm sorry, I'm kind of trying to pull up some names when we're talking here.
2: Well, we're putting you on the spot, uh, so.
3: No, and that's fine. I'm just you know, like at some point, you know, one of those Clemson guys or both are going to need to get some looks. You know, with Tony and, and Jeff Scott. Um my understanding is obviously Elliott's a play caller. I'd like to see him get a shot, you know, see kind of him in action. Um, rolling through here and trying to look here on some of the guys. And I love – like I was a big drink good guy. I'm glad to see him at App State. And that's going to be a tough act to follow at, at App State, you know, with Satterfield. But he's a guy I like what he does offensively. He's kind of doing some things that are a little bit divergent, in my opinion. Not just kind of following the crowd, you know, at child time, and and so I'm interested to see kind of what he can do. So I mean, those are some kind of some names that without really kind of digging in um, that, that we're yeah. kind of paying attention to. anybody on anybody on your radar that you're thinking of? Kind oh of no, summers, I'm trying to kind of. No, uh, I mean, uh,
2: you know, I I think um, I think Clark Lee at Notre Dame is is yeah. just uh, from. From knowing him and knowing the way his mind operates, he's going to be, you know, he's he's your, he's what you're talking about in terms of a, a, a figure outer. You know, he thinks big picture. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. You know, I'll, I'll yeah, be, yeah. I'll be really interested in, you know, whether Grinch can, you know, yeah, I don't, and yeah. I don't, I don't know the personality for Grinch. I, he's, he, I feel like he's a little bit of a, uh, under the radar guy in terms of. Just um, but if you can turn things around as a defensive coach at Oklahoma, I mean that that'll that'll say something.
0: No doubt.
3: Yeah, yeah, I, I'm a, yeah, I agree. I mean Grinch, Grinch did a phenomenal job at Washington State. I think it's going to be a really interesting. I mean they certainly can get the talent there. I think Lincoln's going to play a key role. And does he does he right. allow Grinch? Is he gonna is he going to create an environment that allows defense to thrive?
0: And he might not. <laughs> he might not. <laughs> um, he is Stephen Prather, Sports Source Analytics. You can check out all of their products at sportssourceanalytics.com. You can follow them on Twitter. Great uh, nuggets always getting dropped on Twitter at Sports Source A, S P O R T S O U R C E A. Stephen, this has been so much fun. Thank you so much.
3: Thank you, guys. We really appreciate it. Always good to come on.